Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I have a conversation with Dr. Matt Carden. Matt is a writer and a freelance editor living in North Central Arkansas. With a PhD in leadership and a master's degree in religious studies, he writes frequently about the intersection of religion, horror, art, and creativity. He is also vice president of academic affairs at North Arkansas College. This is Matt's second time on the podcast. And it was a great conversation. We really do explore a lot of material. Our conversation starts by looking at his most recent publication, The Journals, Volume 1, 1993 to 2001. We explore what led to the journals in the first place and how he thought about the process of publishing them and and what that means for him. Uh, Throughout the conversation, we explore a variety of topics, including sleep paralysis, the paranormal, Christianity, dreams, the daemon muse, Robert Anton Wilson, H.P. Lovecraft, the religious studies scholar at Rice University, Jeffrey Kripal, Eric Davis, and so much more. Not only is Matt a brilliant person with a ton of creative and interesting ideas and perspectives, He's just a good human being, very open and generous and kind. I feel like we have some wonderful chemistry and I really enjoy connecting with him. My only regret is that we don't live closer to each other because I would have loved 
to do this interview face to face and you know, share a, a drink with him. But with that said, I'm grateful for Zoom and the technology of this podcast so that we can share these conversations and these ideas with the rest of the world. For those of you that are listening that have enjoyed this podcast that resonated with this episode, I want to encourage you to share this content with your friends and family. If you have the time, if you have the inkling, I want to encourage you, maybe even implore you to go to the Apple Podcast app and there not only leave me a positive five-star rating, but please take the time, if you're led, to leave me a review. Talk about what the podcast means to you. Maybe highlight an episode or an author that you've enjoyed listening to. This helps with the algorithm. It helps getting the content out to more people. As always, I want to encourage you to take the ideas and the perspectives that were explored in this episode and connect with someone in your life. Have a conversation. Even if you disagree, the point is to connect, to grow from each other's conversation and perspective. And as always, go out and continue the conversation. So Matt, thank you again for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I know this is your second time on, and I've been really eager to reconnect and, and have this conversation about uh, your journal and and maybe even your, your new substack, uh, Living into the Dark. I, I think there's so much great stuff in that. I'm just excited about having this conversation. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on again. It was uh, It felt like the conversation we had last time. You know, on non-dual Christianity and Alan Watts, it just felt like it it uh, came out well. You know, it went good places. So I appreciate your interviewing style, and it's good to do this with you. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we can start with uh, the you know volume one of your of your journal. And I guess the first question I had, and and I I felt a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know this precise distinction, but in your introduction. You write about the fact that it was a journal versus a diary, mm-hmm. and and I was hoping you could just kind of shed light on that distinction and and why you decided to do one over the other. Well, I never really made a decision, and I didn't think about the fact that I was journaling and not uh, writing a diary. But the usual distinction that's drawn is that a a diary is just a person's record of what he or she did every day and we've all kept a diary of some sure kind right you know dear diary you don't have to start it with that but that's a diary is the uh, the 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 
private book where you write down who you spoke with, what you said, what you did, maybe some thoughts about it. Yeah. But a but a journal is uh, usually defined as being something more where you're actually processing things. And I know you've read uh, some into mine. You've seen where, uh, although I do have sometimes a record of things that happened and uh, people that I spoke with and so on, it does uh, it does fulfill what I say in that introduction, where it's more like an inner autobiography. You know, there's huge stretches. The majority of it don't even really reference things in my outer life. It's more ideas that had gripped me. Uh, it's partly commonplace book. That's another distinction. A commonplace book tends to be where you put down, you record um, things from books that you have encountered or, or elsewhere, you know, it becomes your running uh, record of the, of the ideas that have entered your life. Right. That are interesting to you. It's part commonplace book, but it's a journal in that I'm pursuing thoughts and ideas and processing my life and interpreting things in it including what I'm reading and what I've encountered outwardly. Um, it was interesting to me to go back and read it and recognize you could go, I think sometimes a year or two or three and really without, if there weren't outside commentary, have no idea where I lived or whether I was married or what my job was or who I was interacting with. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. My mind. Yeah. So that's the, that's, that's the distinction. I think. Th that's the distinction. That's nothing. I, I feel like that's really helpful. Um, let, let, let me say too, from the beginning, you know, I have a set of questions and maybe some some threads that I wanted us to follow. But if, if you feel like there's something that I'm missing in the journal or, or there's something that you really want to highlight, please feel free to just pause me and, and you know, ask the question or take us down the path that you feel like we should go. Um, sure. You know, I don't know if I mentioned this the first time, but I, I try to treat these podcast interviews sort of like I do my own therapy with, with my clients, which is more of a collaborative approach. And I kind of want to share power. And I know it's technically my podcast, but I'm, I'm really just interested in hearing from you and learning about your perspective. Appreciate that. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I dig that approach. Okay, great. So I had, I, I will say, if you're okay with this, I want to read kind of this segment from your introduction, because I think there's a lot there and it kind of maybe will set the trajectory for what we talk about. Um, yeah, like I said, this is in your intro and it's kind of a summation in terms of the overarching theme of, I think, the journal. And, and you write, if there is an overarching theme, it is the overwhelming intensity of my abiding compulsion to search for a spiritual and philosophical answer to the riddle of my life as informed and abetted by a profusion of books, authors, philosophers and sages, many of whom I only partly or sometimes flat out wrongly understood as I appropriated them for my own unconscious ends, using them as fodder to think the thoughts, feel the feelings, and move philosophically and spiritually in the directions that I was interiorly programmed to move. I thought that was so well said, and I was just hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that overarching theme, because I think it gets into kind of why you started the journal and maybe even why you wanted to publish it to kind of spread it out into the world. Hmm. You bet. Um, as I, I noticed that 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 part of the introduction, it came to me. Uh, actually, the idea for it came to me as I was transcribing all that material. You know, the first uh, that the, the the first volume is uh, covers nineteen ninety three through two thousand one, and yes. there's going to be a second volume that covers two thousand two to um, twenty twenty two. And uh, so, as I was going through that early stuff, I had, I had forgotten 
most of those entries, I have no memory of her. And it's like 130,000 words, you know, wow. and that's cutting and that's cutting out probably as much as I left in, you know, to avoid repetition and just things that are probably not of general interest. It was a huge amount of material. I don't remember writing most of it. Sure. And um, it, uh, as I was reading through it, and uh, I noticed, I was reminded, as you've seen, that it really is uh, a lot of it is me uh, wrestling philosophically with or sometimes just sort of savoring and delighting in uh, ideas that I've encountered in books uh, from a variety of authors of fiction and nonfiction, philosophers, spiritual writers, historical books, horror, this, that and the other. And I sometimes I would read uh, an entry as I was transcribing it and realize Oh, I like the way that came out. I read it now and it sounds pretty good, but I would also notice that I probably, let's say I, I was, I was dealing with some sort of, let's say a specific philosophical theme that I was following in my reading. This is on my own. You know, I, I didn't, uh, from 92 to 96, I was out of college. I graduated from as an undergraduate. I had my bachelor's degree in 92. So this wasn't being done in any kind of situation where I was really talking with anybody. A lot of it was pre pre-internet for me too you know yeah and uh, so I'm, I'm reading it now going i probably had no idea what i was reading i didn't mm. have like professors who were helping me to understand it or even much conversation with anybody around me i wasn't talking about anything uh, in there you you've seen where i was dealing with a lot of uh, um like non-dual spiritual issues and mystical yes. spirituality and other things that was just purely books and me and uh, mm. I had no contact with anyone. And I look at it now and go, interesting thoughts, interesting ideas that I think I was dealing with. They're interesting to me now. But in, in some places, it'd be like, I, I didn't understand what that book was saying at all. I see myself talking about it. And I probably could have today been in contact with someone through social media or email <laughs> that I would have been in conversation <laughs> with and had a completely different understanding of what this man or woman was saying. But maybe that's the way it was meant to be because... I, I can observe myself in those journal entries now kind of hammering out, living my way into what feels like an ownership of my own perspective. That's the overarching theme I had talked about, right? Got the you. Idea yeah. Of trying to, trying to understand the mystery, the riddle of my own life that I'm here and conscious. I found my, that I sort of lived my way into it, misunderstandings and all it was, mm. it was like and many many times it was more me as the person reading and then feeling compelled because it was an obsession gotcha writing in this journal feeling compelled to deal with that in this format that sort of led me i guess where i was meant to go regardless of whether technically the way i was construing some of the things i was reading was accurate or would actually get an a or a b or a c if i were tested on it <laughs> sure you know, one of the things that came up to me when I read that passage and as I got into the journals was I, I'm, I've now become friends with, uh, there's a religious study scholar out here at Rice, Nikki Clements. She kind of specializes on some of the religious dimensions of Michel Foucault. In some of his later years, he, he got into different aesthetic practices and, and ended up talking about something he called the technology or the technologies of the self these various ways that we kind of form a self or for thinking about it in Jungian terms, different things that we engage in to help us in that individuation process. And I was curious if, if the journal, if writing was one of those ways that you were shaping yourself, shaping your identity, uh, b building a path forward as you unfolded in your individuality. 
That's a good way to put it, and I think the answer is yes. As I say, uh, for a lot of that period, I really didn't have anybody that I was talking to about any of that. The only person I was talking to was myself, mm. and I really had the sense of the, of the, the uh, ideas and the people who were putting them forth but sometimes not even the people, sometimes just sort of the disembodied ideas Sure. as, um, as my, my crowd, you know, my, my living cloud of companions. And, um, it's not that I didn't have a daily life and you do see early in it, especially you see, you see me talk about some daily life things. Sure. The deep issues that really obsessed me for so long, like, uh, religious issues, spiritual issues, issues of identity, issues of, even some societal, cultural things. Mm. I wasn't really talking with anybody, with anybody about them. And uh, people around me saw me reading obsessively. But uh, it, that way of dealing with them was almost like I said, in my mind, feeling like they were my real crowd, my tribe, people would say these days. Sure. Uh, that was that was formative for me. And as a writer, too, the, the thing is also that the journal is also sort of the the record of me learning how my sound, finding my own voice by absorbing the voices of bunches and bunches of other people. Some of them fiction writers, but as I look back, it seems like it was much more philosophy and essay writers and so yeah. on that were shaping me and figuring out, well, these fascinate me. I didn't think about it this way, but it was kind of like when, you, when I can ask myself now, why did those things attract me? Why was I so driven? I mean, really obsessively mm. uh, to, to just go to my journal and write. I guess it was squeezing out of me who I was, who I was going to be. I know I kind of talk in that. Sometimes I talk at, at length today. I talk in paragraph form. I talk in real measured terms. Sometimes I think that all lots of that and my basic cognitive style Okay. and, uh, and, and expanding style of verbal expression and thought came out of processing all of that stuff along with just the native perceptions of my own life. Sure. Join those things too and put it in that journal. Sure. So Matt, I, I actually wondered if, you know, writing things down, journaling, was that something that was spoken about in, you know, like a, an early religious community or I, I guess I was curious as, as a therapist who sometimes encourages clients to write things down and, and process, you know, emotional, philosophical, religious struggles in kind of the, the written medium what, was there anyone that was kind of first encouraging you to do that? Or did that just emerge spontaneously as something maybe your psyche felt compelled to do? Sort of arose on my own. I did a little bit of it in college. Okay. And I, I do remember that uh, in my high school senior year, I was in a, a college prep English class. Okay. Taught by Mrs. Mrs. Ellis, Joanne Ellis, who was also, she and her husband were friends of the family and their kids just a small town. So, you know, she was a big presence in my life at more than just school. I remember that she in this um, modern lit class had an assignment for all semester long students to keep a journal that she gave specific rules about um, on our reading and our responses to the reading. Mm. And you noticed as you, as you read my published journal, I know you noticed that I had uh, throughout with some minor variations, but mostly stable over years and years. I had a, I had a standard way of uh, listing a heading at the yes. beginning. Notice it would be, a, the date format would be like, today is February 17th. So the date format would be like 2 slash 17 slash 
2023. Yes. And it wouldn't be always, I, I think often, sometimes it was 23. Sometimes I would put the 2023 in there, you know, and then a gap, like I typed five spaces after it when I was typing the journal up. Okay. And then it would give the day of the week, you know, and then it gives the actual time of day with an AM or a PM. So I have all of those journal entries dated with the date, day of the week, and actual time. I know a lot of people do that. That's not all that uncommon, but I didn't think about the fact that I learned that from her mm. and kept doing that. And there were, there were many years after that, that high school class that I didn't journal, but something about that hit me uh, and it was processing our readings. So that, so that was, maybe that stuck with me, but there was not actually a, I grew up as I think, you know, very deeply uh, Christian, religious, evangelical, Protestant, Christian, religious. And uh, there wasn't really any such thing other than maybe some stuff that I would have read in like Sunday school materials okay, or, or, or like uh, the weekly um, youth oriented devotional magazines that I got from my church that talked about private writing, the whole rise of the, of it, it seems like almost an industry of self-help books that are teaching you how to journal. How right. to it. I, I started writing, I think before that, Oh, I should mention, I did take a class in college titled the creative process Ooh. and in my uh you know my former blog the teaming brain that i wrote for yeah 16 years i just ended last year um there's a the most popular post at that at that blog was one where i shared in detail um my sleep paralysis experiences that contributed so much to my becoming a horror writer and uh I described something about that creative process class in there because mm. the lady who, who, who taught it, her name was Betty Scott at the university of Missouri. She was kind of a large presence in my life and psyche. And, uh, she taught this class. She was a musician. She was a trumpet player, oh, really wow. advanced, but she taught this honors class titled the creative process, which was about what you would think, but she really brought in what would have to be labeled a lot of new age things. You know, we all drew our own mandalas, Oh, nice. And, 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 and also without, uh, without literalizing it, kind of acting like more of a metaphorical exercise, sure. we did things like imagine what our uh, sort of archetypal spirit guide might be or something like that. Mm. You know, I don't know if the university really knew what she was doing <laughs> in this class. Uh, maybe they did. But she, there was some journaling that we that we did in there. Okay. And I think probably that plus Mrs. Ellis's class when I was a senior in high school, more than anything, shaped the way I went about it. Mm. And then I was having to know these journals that I was keeping according to class parameters were being read by someone. Sure. You know, I kind of kept that drive, but then became only my own reader. Although I had, for my later journals, although I, as they say, I had the sense that it was almost like I was doing all this writing before the gaze of these thinkers and writers who were becoming so important to me, they sure. didn't think of me, but it felt like I was in conversation with them. Yeah, no, that I, I like the way that comes across that that resonates with me. Now, I, I was really hoping we would get into some of the dreams and the whole experience with sleep paralysis. But before we do that, I just want to go back to a word that you've used several times to describe Maybe even what what led to journaling or, you know, as, as you were wrestling with all these thinkers and ideas, you talk about an obsession. And I know that 
On the one hand, that could be coded as kind of a negative thing, maybe something pathological. I don't know that I necessarily see it that way. I'm sure there's people that would disagree. I, I tend to encourage my friends, myself, some of my clients to maybe stay close to our obsessions to try to wrestle with what they say about our psyche. I, I understand how they can become very problematic and hurtful, but if maybe we looked at them in a positive way, yeah, could you speak about why you re- you were using that language of obsession? Because I'm, I'm intrigued by that. The thing about an obsession is it's one of many things, that, uh, but it's one of the most pointed of these things that calls into uh, question. It highlights the the point of departure, the division, maybe the liminal space, the line between what we usually, most of us in modern day Western culture, at least, and I think really throughout the world now, because the whole world is to some extent, it become Westernized economically and sure. culturally. This line between what we feel is this autonomous self mm. that we are with self-determination about who we are and what we're going to think. And there's this clear boundary between our, the line between that and other stuff that actually it turns out is in our own psyche, mm. but it's not so much under voluntary autonomous control. I mean, that has been framed in a lot of ways. You're a, you're a professional counselor. You know, you're well acquainted with the terminology and the theories. You can go all Freudian. Sure. The, the, the first to really famously uh, codify it for what became uh, modern psychoanalysis, depth psychology, psychotherapy. Yes. Talk about the, the, the unconscious the and the unconscious and all that. Um, but obsession is clearly one of those things that, it feels like it's part of you because you're, you're aware of it and it's guiding, it's coloring, not just what you do, but your thought and your mood and so on. But at the same time, it's there. It's like an objective force that's driving you. You don't mm. have control over it. And yet it's in your subjectivity. Um, I talked about creativity earlier. Uh, I have thought and written extensively over the years about uh, the concept of inspiration. Mm. And I've written about the, the, the demon muse with the diamond muse, uh, you know, I wrote a, an ebook called the a course in demonic creativity subtitled the writer's guide to the inner genius. Mm. Those, that whole idea of inspired creativity shades over into the realm of obsession with me. And when I look back at my writing a journal of the journal, it was kind of like that. The idea of the demon muse is of course you have a, this creative sense. Everyone's familiar with the sense of feeling driven to be creative. We think of the muse, the, the term coming from ancient Greece, right, as the idea of the, the spirit or the spirits that bring the ideas to you. You know, traditionally yeah. they would whisper into the ear of the poet. You had a muse of history. You had a muse of poetry and so on. Um, but the demon or the daimon in the ancient Greek mode of it was another figure that was in the psyche that was sort of this autonomous type spirit in a the way Plato rendered it and a bunch of later writers in the mystical and Gnostic traditions was like that everybody has this accompanying spirit that comes to them from mm. the gods. And it's like, it's, it's the thing that your, your personality is housed in. You don't, you didn't have control over what you're interested in, what you're obsessed with. And so that's what the gods gave to you is this spirit. That's like your blueprint. Yeah. Brother Red James Hillman. Oh yeah. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. He was one of the ones that uh, articulated a bunch of this for me, even though I've been thinking about it for a while. So when I talk about obsession, 
uh, I'm thinking about it largely in those terms, you know? Sure. Uh, the, the idea of there was this thing that was just white hot within me. I mm. can remember just, I'd, I'd be, I'd be in the middle of something and it'd be like, I got to get away to my, to my journal. I've got to process this. And then I spend hours and hours. You've seen how some of the entries are maybe a paragraph and there's some entries that are medium length to long essays, you know, yeah. typed, they go across four and five and six pages. Yes. And uh, I, I, it was like a, demonic amused inspired obsession yeah and, uh, there's you know when you get into demons and diamonds there's the idea of possession too. the church the catholic church mm. even has those categories there's sort of obsession and oppression and possession and uh, this whole this whole area of what's in your psyche that feels like it's you but you can tell i guess my definition of i has to include things that are not autonomous conscious eye is very fascinating to me okay and, and my, my when i think about my writing of the journal it was all all wrapped up in that matt i so love that and resonate with it i guess what's coming up to me and this is going to kind of tether it back to something you said a moment ago when i think about the unconscious when i think about that dimension in us that's not fully in our control but that's definitely a part of us whatever we call it it's really connected to to dreams and and yep. the dream world and so could you maybe talk more about that, how you've understood dreams, your your period where you were having the sleep paralysis and, yeah, how you kind of made sense of that and what that led to? You bet. And I can preface by saying in that in that uh, creativity class in college. Yes. Uh, they're one of the things that we were asked to do. And I did it religiously. OK. <laughs> you might say, was was keep a dream journal. Oh, and I've okay. done that off and on over the years. It got started there in that class. So gotcha. Scott was was really influential in some ways. Mm. Uh, dreams. Um, my my most epic dreams that I remember probably are all recorded in that journal. And I, and I don't know if you may have gotten to the point yet where yeah i did i described my first sleep paralysis experience actually i had been experiencing it for a while in the one two years after i graduated from college but i had no word for it it seems like everybody knows what sleep paralysis is these days yeah it's gotten shot through pop culture yes. and even like the uh, paranormal activities movies paranormal you know they, they paranormal activity movies they have they involve some of that it's a sure. big in the horror genre there's there's even horror novels about it and if you watch Evil on CBS, which is now on Paramount Plus, the first season featured numerous sleep paralysis mm. things and a sleep paralysis demon named George. And I was watching it two or three years ago, like, good God. Oh, it's fascinating. It's upon the culture now, you know. <laughs> but me, back in the early 90s, I started experiencing it. Mm. And um, where, you, where you come to a consciousness or partial consciousness during sleep, but you're in that REM stage where there's a mechanism that puts a chemical out that paralyzes your body. Sure. So you're paralyzed physically during REM, and if you if that short circuits and you wake up, you panic because you have no voluntary muscle control. You can't move. You know, mm. I mean the, the the evolutionary idea is that maybe this is a thing in place so you don't act out your dreams. And it short circuits when you sleepwalk. Mm. But the other short circuit is if when you sleepwalk, you're you're it, it it's the paralysis is gone, but you're still asleep and dreaming. Right. Sleep paralysis is where the paralysis is still there, but you wake up and. Uh, it seems like most people are a huge, I forget what the percentage, it's like 30, 40, 50% of any population around the planet. The, the statistics show upon studying have experienced this. A lot of people hear about it for the first time and go, wow, I have that all the time, mm. you know, but uh, 
I didn't know what it was and mine were pretty awful. And I had the kind that there's a certain strain of them among a large number, but still more minority uh, that uh, the people who have them with these dream type visions. But since you're awake, it's as if you've, they're happening. And so I had demonic visitation experiences like that. And I described those in the journal. I'd, I'd been having this happen for a few weeks or months. And I remember in the, in the entry, that was one of the only entries I actually remembered writing. Yeah. When I came to it, as I was transcribing, I remember that. After a few weeks or months of it, I'd said, I said, I, I just got to deal with this. So I remember I started that entry by saying, something has been happening to me and I'm not quite sure what it is. And I described how the first major really epic version of it after a few preliminary ones was I woke up and I was dreaming. I was on the basement floor and my wife was beside me and uh, sleeping down there for some reason. And there's somebody standing over me. Mm. But then I woke up in our bedroom and the person was still there. Only Mm. it wasn't a person. It was this dark, totally dark humanoid shape totally black black the the way i think of it is like cut out of the room it was not it was like a hole in the room but it shaped like a person totally Mm. black and uh i woke up into it and so i mean i didn't know i was in a sleep paralysis state can't move this thing is there and i'm awash in the worst terror nightmarish horror i've ever felt and i remember i put a footnote in the journal to say I remember not writing it in great detail in the journal because it still terrified me so much. It was wow. as if I had, without writing it down, the idea that it would re- recall this experience or this thing if it was real. Sure. If I wrote too much of it. In later years, like in that blog post, I've written more about it. The thing was had like electricity or fire all over it. And it was as if it were sucking me or my soul into it. Mm. And it was, it was like I had been dreaming and then woke up and it's still there. And my wife starts making kind of panic noises. So I think she's seeing it too. It's totally real. Turns out she was hearing me trying to make this screaming noise, but I couldn't. And so she was reacting to me and I thought she was reacting because this thing's really there. Gotcha. And then there were other versions of that that happened over time, plus just nightmares. But then I would wake up from nightmares into a paralyzed state. So all these, all these things were my most powerful dream experiences. I know some people have vivid dreams they remember that aren't nightmares right i have a few but mine would involve always like this thing that i can't see its face due to this total darkness or it's turned away there's one that i wrote in the in the journal where i won't go into all the details but i ended up outside a house where someone had been outside attacking the house Mm. and whatever it was that was attacking the house i run around the corner of the house and uh, somehow came face to face with it it was coming around the other side but I didn't wow. actually see it because the minute I hit it, I boom, I'm shot out of the dream and I'm in the, the paralyzed state, which sometimes came with, uh, which I've learned is common. Some people describe it this way, a feeling of being electrocuted, mm. total electricity all through the body, arching up in bed, but paralyzed. Those are my main dream experiences. Yeah, man, Matt, that's fascinating. Are, are, are you familiar and are you a fan of, uh, he's actually out here in Houston at Rice as well, Jeffrey Kripal. 100%. Okay. I, I edited a, an encyclopedia of the paranormal for an academic company a few years ago. And uh, uh, I was already a great fan of his, of Jeff's work. And 
when I contacted him, he was the primary person who helped me get in contact with the network of scholars that I commissioned to. Oh, wow. He's just great. Um, my, my little connection, I'm, I'm hoping at some point to have him on the podcast, but when I was doing my sort of in-depth psychotherapy with a, a Jungian therapist, turned out he had studied with him at Rice, my therapist had, and they were really good friends. So he had me read most of his stuff while we were in therapy. And I just, he just opened up so many windows and doors, uh, I just think so highly of him. But I guess why he's coming up for me is you talk about the sleep paralysis is in my understanding of his work. He's he's real big on whenever we have a supernatural or anomalous experience, however we label it, there is this process, this hermeneutical process that we engage in where we try to make sense of it, that that's inherent to it and, and a really important part of it. So I'm curious if you could speak to how you ended up making sense of these anomalous experiences what was the framework that you were utilizing to yeah to understand them first i'll say that that Kripal's work uh, is just i love this is brilliant to me yeah you know yeah and his 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 uh, ability to make to bring into the academic the world of academic respectability yes ideas about uh, just serious talk about the paranormal whether yes. it's scientific or cultural or whatever is, is amazing um for me I think I was largely helped by two things. Actually, one was Robert Anton Wilson. Okay. Whom I you know you're probably familiar with. Most, but many people associate him with the Illuminatus trilogy that sure. he Robert Shea wrote or the Schrodinger's Cat trilogy. But he's the American counterculture writer, novelist, philosopher, big in the counterculture movement of the 70s, you know. Can I just say real quick, uh, excuse me for interrupting you, Matt, is my, my real introduction to him was through Eric Davis's book, High Weirdness. I'm not sure if you've yeah. read that, but he has a whole section on his work. And I was just blown away by the whole entire book. But but that section on Anton yeah. Wilson. So I, I wouldn't say I know him well, but I'm, I'm really eager to learn more about him. That that book by Eric is fantastic. Oh, it's it so good. His, it came from his um, doctoral dissertation which he earned a, a, a PhD in religious studies under Kripal at Rice. That's yeah. where that came from. And uh, I was, Eric ran a, a radio, uh, uh, I guess it was a podcast for years titled Expanding Minds. Oh, it was one of my favorites. I loved it. I'm so sad that it's gone. <laughs> well, yeah, me too. I was a guest on there in 2012. Oh, wow. And okay. I, and, I, and I guess I was talking about the demon muse and creativity okay. and all that. Nice. And, uh, I was really shocked when that book came out. You know, the acknowledgments at the beginning, uh, I'm included among them as somebody that he said he encountered my thinking at some point. And, oh, and Matt, that's incredible. Wow. So that, that was that blew me away because that book is like for you, that book's kind of talismanic. He put so much into that. Um, and the Wilson section is one of the best introductions to Robert Anton Wilson anybody could ever could ever have. OK, uh, Wilson, you know, from that he he. Sometimes uh, his approach to reality was referred to in, in writing about it was called guerrilla ontology. Yes. G-U-E, you know, uh, R-I-L-L-A. So he uh, he himself had had a, a bunch of anomalous experiences that are probably most famously recounted and best recounted in his book, Cosmic Trigger, mm. which everybody should read. Okay. And he starts and he, he had weird things happening as he was going through adult professional life as a he had a PhD in psychology. He was a professional writer, you know, and uh, plugged into the counterculture scene with a lot of important people in the 60s and 70s. He wrote, he edited the Playboy Forum for a while, you know, and uh, 
his his position that he lays out at the beginning of Cosmic Trigger. So he, so you'll understand where he's going in this memoir type book was what he called um, model agnosticism, mm. meaning remaining absolutely agnostic about the actual truth, the really realness of any model of reality. So he was he had had weird things happen to him, like the sense that he experienced over a period of time that he was receiving telepathic communications from the star Sirius. Mm. Did that really happen? Well, he said he remember he remembered being in a frame of mind where he thought it was. But then he could easily, easily, he had a PhD in psychology, you know, and was interested in neurobiology and all this, easily explain that in terms of just physical, neurochemical causes, maybe even pathological causes, or maybe just the workings of the psyche. And he would not come down on any side of it, total agnosticism. And, and, mm. and he counseled in his some of his books, like exercises, like his famous quarter exercise, go around for so however long, you know, for however long it takes you to just randomly find a quarter on the ground that someone's dropped, mm. pause, and deliberately one time it happens, put yourself in the mindset, feel what it feels like to believe you're living in a world where that, that's meaningful. Mm. There are there are meaningful coincidences. Everything is interlinked. You know, it's like a symbol. It's like encountering a dream. You've been thinking about a quarter and there it was. Forget all that. But go back another day and like, go looking for another quarter. Next time, kind of through will, put yourself in the state of mind of someone, of someone who's a pure materialist and says, it's meaningless. Mm. It's, it's just, it's a random chance. Um, there were no such thing as meaningful coincidences. You know, he, he really was big on thought experiments that would engage your emotions and your psyche. I think I learned from him. I read his books, uh, late high school and college. Okay. Like most of them, uh, it, it somehow imprinted on me and kind of helped prepare me for this thing where I'm encountering, you know, demonic forms to be able to put them in this hyperspace and find a vein of energy in my own philosophical thinking my own metaphysical position and my writing where I just ride the boundary of model agnosticism. Mm. Like I can see how you can make a consistent claim. You could consistently argue. Some people would say, no, you couldn't. And I would say, check your philosophical presuppositions. You, yeah. know? you can consistently argue for a supernatural or a paranormal interpretation of this. You can also consistently argue and, and make it airtight pretty much within its own boundaries for a subjective dream, physical, like I say, a neurochemical explanation of it. How are you going to argue for one over the other? Because mm. all such things proceed from axioms, assumptions, entire worldview, ground level presuppositions that are not subject to argument for anybody. Next time someone tries to convince you, if, if you find someone you're crossways to their fundamental position on things about the way reality is, try to figure out how either one of you could convince the other one. Because somewhere along the way, they're doing something where they're counting something as evidence that only is, quote, evidence because of the system that they've chosen to think about it in terms mm. of. Same thing with you. And then what are the principles by which you argue for these things? They're all, they all seem airtight and logical to one person. But someone coming from a different frame of reference is probably consistent in their thinking, but it comes to a different conclusion. That, that leads me to my, and I'll say this more short, uh, more, more briefly. The other person who was so influential on me was uh, David Hufford. Okay. I'm not familiar with him. I don't think. He, uh, he was a cultural anthropologist, folklorist, um, 
uh, who wrote the first book that really sort of brought sleep paralysis mm. back to popular awareness and scholarly awareness. It's titled The Terror That Comes in the Night. Mm. Came out in the 70s, I think. And it's subtitled An Experience-Centered Study of Supernatural Assault Traditions. And he developed what he called his whole experience-centered uh, methodology, sort of a philosophical methodology by conducting the study he conducted part of it was when he was a grad student in newfoundland and was studying mm. the old hag tradition people being visited by the just perceived old witch-like figure when they're paralyzed and found out that there was a cultural tradition there but older people who knew the tradition and younger people who had never heard of it wow ha had the experience so you can't say that the cultural story was programming somebody to experience it it was happening on its own mm. so does this mean the old hag is real what does it mean and he expanded from there. And in his book, he uh, makes a great case. And in some papers he's written, he says, the raw data of experience is what we construct our worldviews from, you know? So taking the specific issue of if somebody who is like from Newfoundland or me or anybody that's had these, uh, say, a sleep paralysis experience, which is as subjective as it can get, it's really in your face. You can't get away from the emotional feeling of, plus the sensory feeling of it. It was very real. He says uh, he, he takes pains to say in strict terms, in just practical terms, people who from any culture or within their own individual selves who take a supernatural view of that may well be rational. They're not departing from mm. rationality at any given point. They are building on the raw data of what they encountered, what they experienced in their subjectivity, but they're taking a certain set of presuppositions and rules to interpret it mm. doesn't mean they're not rational if they come to a supernatural conclusion rational at rationality it doesn't have to do with the conclusions you reach it has to do with the method by which you reach them got you other people are equally rational and would come to a non-supernatural and, and probably even anti-supernatural interpretation they have in fact sure uh so you see what i'm getting at oh yeah Robert anton wilson david hufford me uh I think again, that goes back to that, what I wrote in that intro to the journals about things I encountered, ideas I encountered apparently being perfectly calibrated to lead me in the direction of, of thinking the things, thinking the thoughts and feeling the feelings that I was programmed to think and feel. Yes. Th th those kinds of books and thinkers elicited from me what I think I was probably headed toward gotcha. anyway, which was to say I remove final interpretations and I find, mm. like I say, a vein of fascination and power in just remaining on that edge. Mm. Is it real? Is it not? God, supernatural, paranormal, certainly is real as an experience and a cultural reality. Mm. And I think it's neat to see sometimes it seems objectively real. Yeah, sometimes not. And Kripal is great on that too. Yes, you know, it's yes. Where, it's where subject it, it is. It is at the line where subjectivity and objectivity meet. Yes, and that's what makes it so fascinating. Oh man, okay. So Matt, help me with this one. You know, just trying to put all these pieces together in some ways. Um, and and I know both of us have some type of relationship to you know Christianity. What's what's coming up for me that the, the question that I'm wondering as, as I think about Robert Anton Wilson as, as I've understood him through Davis's book you know he talks about 
this radical skepticism or, or a, a type of agnosticism that you're describing. Mm-hmm. How, as, as an almost as a thought experiment, what, what would you imagine would happen if Robert Anton Wilson walked into kind of a typical evangelical church? Is, is there a sense in which you feel that Christianity could benefit from his perspective? I know that's a loaded yeah, so, question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it'd be like, what would happen for him or what would happen for them? You know, <laughs> yeah. Maybe both. We could, um, we could explore both. He, um, I think uh, there's been a way in which in, which, uh, in the past several years, 10, 20, 25 years, evangelicalism, for example, has, has been... Um, it's been maturing. There, there's a lot of actual really high level savvy mm. philosophy and theology being done in evangelical circles. And it's kind of interesting. Kripal himself is well aware of that. He wrote a, a textbook on a world religions titled comparing religions that I taught from. Oh, okay. And at one point in it, he mentions that of course he's not an evangelical Christian, but he notes there's very sophisticated thinking that's being done in evangelical circles. Um, some of them, have embraced some form of postmodernism sometimes mm. occasionally. So they might well be able to resonate with Wilson and so, you know, in some ways, you know, postmodernism decontextualizes sure. symbols and finds what's kind of wonky and new and new patterns. But I think largely outside the really sort of what might be the the advanced vanguard of the intelligentsia <laughs> evangelicalism. <laughs> And even in, in some cases, maybe especially within that vanguard of those who really in their theology and their philosophy in that vein, they, they, they remain very, what, I guess, what would count as very conservative and very literalistic, some of them, in their understanding of their religion. Uh, you would find great, great discomfort with mm. Wilson. They would, they would think either he was crazy or he was evil, because here he comes saying, Sure, live inside that worldview. I mean, nobody can stop you. Right. Um, model agnosticism. I'm not going to say you're wrong. I'm going to point out that um, he liked to talk about reality tunnels. You know, mm. he liked to, he, he could point out that that's one reality tunnel, and I can point to uh, a virtually infinite number of additional ones that exist in the world around you. There are people starting from similar or the same data, drawing different conclusions. Many, many evangelicals in that church would not be able to understand what he was saying. Mm. And to the extent that they could, they would reject it because it would seem threatening. They're what what uh, what uh, Peter Berger, the great sociologist, sure. might call their their cultural namas. Mm. You know, their their cultural grid of meaning would be threatened because it would be shown to be just one. Yeah. Wilson would call just one reality tunnel. And so that's that's that kind of thing on all sides of all religious and even philosophical and political traditions is mm. why you find it so dangerous when people are dogmatic because right and fundamentalism depend on there's the idea that there's only one right way yeah i was thinking like a, like a, like an epistemological certainty that, 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 you have to have this epistemological certainty. That's it. That that, that that was kind of my fantasy of of Wilson walking into a church. Could it possibly lead to greater epistemological humility? But but maybe that is just a fantasy that it would be it's, too it's, well, it, it, threatening. People, people people tend to feel threatened. That's the thing. You know, there, I'm sure it'd be the law of averages would say there'd be. You take take a church of 100 people. There might be one or two that might be receptive somewhat. Take a church of a thousand. 
proportionally more. I don't know what the numbers actually are, but but uh, it, anytime any any of us have our really really core fundamental ontological and epistemological assumptions or or seeming certainties challenged in some form, it is quite unsettling. And yes, it's quite a defensive reaction unless you are someone who is a, a rare individual indeed. Mm. No, that's that's very well said. Wow. Okay, I I I know I took us kind of on a, a different kind of path, but I guess coming back to your to your to your journals, one of the questions I had was, and you get a little bit into it in the introduction, but I was just curious, you know, what led you to want to go ahead and just publish them? Because I could imagine some people, even though you said very clearly they weren't diaries, they weren't getting into all the details of your external life or even, you know, you edited some of it out in terms of your internal life. Yeah, what, what led you to want to kind of put it out into the world for, for people to access? I blame S.T. Joshi. Okay. Uh, it's like know, the, the Lovecraft Joshi, scholar? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's, that's, that's what he's probably most widely known for, is he's Lovecraft's biographer and maybe the most widely known scholar of Lovecraft. It's an overstatement, but only partially so to say that he kind of invented the field of mm. modern Lovecraft scholarship, which may have moved in different directions now. But, sure. Uh, you know, he's also a, um, famous as a an editor and an author and scholar in the fields of uh, atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism. Okay. So a lot going on in that direction. But um, St. and I have uh, worked together on various projects since the aughts. Maybe, maybe the first one was. Um, the two-volume encyclopedia, Icons of Horror and the Supernatural, where I wrote the entry on angels and demons and their place both in history and folklore and in horror fiction. Sure. So he, he edited that with a co-editor for an academic company. And then he's written for me on a couple of my academic projects. And, you know, it's weird. I was reading him in college, not in classes, but I was reading every... I had a, a self-directed Lovecraft side curriculum at the University of Missouri Library all through college. Oh, wow. Reading every book they had. And a lot of it's involving Joshi, so then... A few years later, I'm working with him. I thought, well, this is cool because I respected his writing. Um, he uh, he edited my uh, last two books that were published by Hippocampus Press, mm. <clears throat> the uh, To Rouse Leviathan, you know, the story collection, and then What the Demon Said, yeah. the essay collection. And um, we were talking about uh, What the Demon Said, which was just about to come out last year. And I knew I'd seen that he had he was publishing through he has his own micro imprint that he he's put together called sarnath press okay based on this the city of sarnath that lovecraft created you know that mm. city in his dream dreamland stories you know he was publishing some of his own youthful journals and we briefly talked by email it came up on that topic and uh i told I, I said i saw you're doing that that's interesting and i told him this is other story in the early aughts uh i came in contact with a woman named olivia drescher Online, mm. and she uh, had, I think, still has a publishing company called Impasio Press, like the word impassion, but take the N. Got you. Off the end. Devoted to fragmentary literature. Mm. She was championing fragmentary literature, a concept I had never thought about. Before. I love that idea. Um, the idea that it is it, the, her whole idea, and she has an essay or two on the Impasio Press site that uh, points out. That, that talks about this rather eloquently saying it's high time that we recognize things like letters, diaries, journals, but even like 
notes, maybe even notes for a novel that was failed and never became a novel or mm. endless other examples as their own genre of literature. It's fascinating. And she published a couple of anthologies of fragmentary literature made up of journal entries and other things like the one I remember in one of them I read it was it was a guy's notes for a novel that never came together mm. it was kind of fascinating to read uh, I ended up uh, some entries a handful of entries from my journal ended up being published in the second of those anthologies from her and that was in I'm gonna get the year wrong that was in 2003 four I forget I forget when but I think the title of it was In Pieces, an anthology okay. of fragmentary writing. And uh, so I had done that. I already knew that I had a bunch of writing for, for over many years on my hands at that point. It was 2002, three, four. And uh, I, um, but then I, when, the, when those came out, I was really not, I'd been putting together after talking with her, like, I'm going to put together a manuscript of my journal entries. I don't know if it'll go anywhere. And it didn't. And then when I saw just a few pieces over eight or 10, published pages published i really felt like huh those really just don't seem all, all that compelling those entries mm. just by themselves you know i felt like for me anyway but i, I don't know how anybody else would see my journal uh, the whole thing builds over time and only you know the, the individual parts may only seem significant mm. in the wider whole so that the think about that was maybe 20 years that was 20 years ago now so then just last year i'm talking to joshi about him by email about Hey, look, you know, you're publishing yours. That's interesting. Uh, I had some of my own journal. I kept a journal for years, had some of it published in an anthology and I didn't know that I liked it, you know, never, never went past that. And he jumped on it and he said, man, I didn't know you kept a journal. He, he said, uh, I think probably a lot of your readers would be interested in that mm. stuff. And I said, mm, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, two or three emails later, it's like, Okay, and so he he said I can publish this this to his micro imprint. It's not a big not big distribution, you know. It's only available on Amazon. Um, but I went okay, and and uh, speaking of things that gain their own obsessive demonic muse force, last year for a few months, last spring, uh, spring of twenty two, just man took on its life like holy crap. Uh, every spare moment that I had and some that I stole away from things when I should have been doing something else. Oh, I know all about that. <laughs> yeah. Went into uh, suddenly this thing got momentum and I was kind of rediscovering all this stuff going, wow. I just, I knew that I wrote that journal for years, but I think I forgot. I actually wrote that journal for years. Mm. And, uh, currently with less energy, that was a big bubble last year. I think it's going to ramp up now. I'm, I'm transcribing what will be the second and final volume. Okay. And I, sometime this spring, maybe late spring. Late spring, okay. Maybe, maybe I don't know, late spring, early summer. But uh, it's that was a big burst of energy, and it was it was he, it was that conversation with him that sparked it, hearkening back to my earlier brush with publishing those. Okay. So, Matt, I know in a second I want to kind of ask you about the transition from Teeming Brain to the Substack. You know, is it living into the dark? I think it's mm -hmm. I think is what it's called. But before I do that, is is there anything else about the journals that you feel like I've missed asking you? Or that's just important for anyone that's listening that might be intrigued to want to check them out. Um, and and I will say I think if anybody has an Amazon Prime account, there's something called Kindle Unlimited, and I believe you can actually get it for free if you pay for that subscription, which is really cool. I think that's part of how I access them. 
I think you can. Yeah, I know. I think you've done a, the, the conversation that you said you thought maybe we got sidetracked. Okay. You know? uh, actually, uh, aside from just talking about any of the specific content of the journals, if anybody has found the types of things we've talked about and also my way of talking about them to be at all interesting, I suppose they might find the journals interesting because, as I said, I think I learned how I, 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 I learned how to how I speak by speaking to myself in that journal. I, I, people should be warned there is a, there are whole sections, as you know, yeah. that are really devoted to uh, me being involved in institutional Christianity over years and struggling with that. And there's a lot of Christian spiritual uh, thinking, and then it'll come out of that uh, after a while. And I cut out huge heaps of it. Okay. And then I'm going to dealing with paranormal things and mystical things and then cultural things and feeling like I'm living in a dystopia and just anyway. Sure. Well, you know, and I, and I don't know if you really get into this whole movement. I, I don't know that I'm identified with it, but I find that a lot of my audience, even a lot of my clients end up being a part of what's called kind of the deconstruction movement out of Christianity so I thought, right. you know, I, I don't know if you would like this or agree with this, but but I I, I have found you to be a resource as I do some of that. Um, I don't know exactly where you've landed at this point, but for anyone who is listening who maybe has a complicated relationship with Christianity, I, I, I have found you to be a tremendous resource. Thank you. I can see that. I mean, I'm familiar with the whole Christian deconstruction. Okay. I guess you call it a movement. It's not a cohesive movement. Right, right. Um, but... Uh, a lot of it resonates with me. It's not. Okay. It's not the middle of where I am right now. Sure. But in in many of the years when I was writing that journal, as you can tell from reading it, if that term had been around, uh, especially if sort of the distributed community yes. that is involved in that now had been around, I would have been right in the middle of that. So maybe some of what I was doing in there was Christian deconstruction before it's called Christian deconstruction. Damn, man! That, I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, that, that that's been my sense of it. I haven't quite put it in those words, but I I really like that. Okay. Well, that's that's a large part of it, not the whole part. But sure. There you go. So I sure. figure I figure if any, if any anybody at this point if they're interested in it, they'll they'll seek it out. So yeah. Titled, what is it? It's uh, Matt. It was, it's titled Journals, Volume One, nineteen ninety three to two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah. And the next one will just be Journals, Volume Two, two thousand two to two thousand twenty two. Okay. Great. So would would you mind just spending a couple moments talking about yeah the the decision to transition from Teeming Brain to living into the dark short version i was i felt moved to begin a blog chose wordpress in 2006 thought hard about a name finally came up with the teeming brain uh, because i wanted to frame it in a way that would give me the chance to think and write about whatever i wanted because i, I had just this omnivorous interest in many things yes it ended up taking on a life of its own um it was a good thing for me you know for a while, like early on, a few months, a couple, three, four months in, I published an interview with uh, Thomas Ligotti oh, yeah. that, uh, that would, that has gone on to kind of be one of the more popular ones that's around, you know, it was collected wow. uh, in, in a book of interviews with him titled born to fear that I edited for subterranean press. And a lot of people talk about it. And over the years, Taming brain thrived 2012. I, I re-scoped it, relaunched it, brought in other people writing for me. Mm. Um, and, uh, it dealt with lots of the stuff we're talking about here. Yes. But along with also just a pointedly apocalyptic and dystopian strain of things, feeling, interpreting current events in terms of those trends. Sure. And, um, um, but for long periods, I went dark 
with it. And I even would talk about it. I'd come back after months and be like, well, you know, my, my inner author, my inner thinker retreated. I went into hibernation. Mm. So that's when I would be just living in the daily life that I hardly ever wrote about in the journal, you know, <laughs> career and family. And so the quotidian, the quotidian, yes, everydayness of the everyday. And, uh, and it kind of, I guess a lot of people came to associate me with that 16 years is a long time in life and on the internet. Mm. And uh, so that it's just teamingbrain.com and it's still there. I plan on leaving it up as a legacy. Oh, site, okay. Substack interested me from the time it, it came on because I liked the look of it. And I thought it was neat that some of the back end stuff, at first I was just on a wordpress.com site. Then I went to wordpress.org and self hosted. I'm not a tech guy. Uh, I heard about Substack like the way it's formatted, interesting people were writing on it and other people had other newsletters on other platforms, you know, and, gotcha. and I thought, I don't know, it feels like this rebirth thing because I haven't been doing much on the teeming brain only off and on for some years and uh, found a vein of energy there. I found it just got going. I was thinking, well, what would it be called? How could it be a successor to the teeming brain? You know, I, I wanted it to be another wide scope sure. thing. And uh, I had the idea of, uh, writing into the dark had come to me from Dean Wesley Smith, popular science fiction writer who, who uh, has written a book called that and gives workshops on that. And you can find a great couple of videos with him presenting the idea of writing into the dark. It's actually what I wanted to entitle this episode. <laughs> okay. Well, you could do that if you wanted to. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> people, might, people might find Dean Wesley Smith. Through that. <laughs> and the point is it's writing without an outline, mm. which, uh, apparently actually a great many of your most well-known authors do people have the idea that oh the standard thing to do because this is what's taught in writing classes right is to conceive it think about it for a while grow it write an outline work your outline actually the story maybe putting some great ground level cultivation of the ground into it but then writing it by living it internally as you do it is a much more common way. So is editing along the way rather than coming up with a draft and going mm. back and editing it. A lot of writers will tell you they do that. And he's very neat, at, very good at describing that. And there's another guy named Michael Laron, who is a, a fantasy author who did a great, great video on Smith's idea mm. uh, and put it on YouTube. And because he has some videos about writing where he sort of brought in also the philosophical, spiritual, implications he, it was neat he was saying you know when you're writing into the dark it's like mythically you're going into a cave which mm. is this story idea or novel idea essay idea book idea and uh you don't know where you're going it's like you fight your way out it's like a labyrinth you know mm. and, it, and it sort of grows you as you do it and, and things end up much more satisfying in the end because you were kind of manifesting this book from your psyche by living it rather than codifying it ahead of time so some neat stuff about writing sure in the don't don't you I think matt about, I, i'm sorry to interrupt you that if we ahead. if we think about and i'm, I'm kind of channeling um damn it i forget the name but it's one of kripal's books uh authors of the impossible i think is, is where i'm getting this Great. idea that if we see writing almost as this metaphor for living a human life sure there's parts that are kind of written for us they're out of our control but if we do have some type of spiritual moral agency and we're writing things through our life as we individuate that thinking about it in terms of, we don't have a established plan and a set blueprint actually resonates with the human experience. 100%. And that's what I had thought when I first discovered Smith's idea, Got you. I read his book and saw these things. I started, started thinking in terms of living into the dark. 
Okay. It's interesting, but that was, that was a couple of years ago, like right towards the beginning of COVID is when I first got onto the gun under this. And uh, so maybe three years ago. And uh, so then I was thinking about, well, I'd like to start a newsletter on Substack. I like mm. the way Substack works, uh, takes all the back end and they do it. You just write, you know, and uh, a modification, but successor to the teaming brain. And then I can't come up with the right theme name and all this. And then one day I was like, wait a minute, I've been thinking about living into the dark. Maybe I want to do a, a, a blog post or a blog series on that. Because I think the idea of living into the dark has legs. Well, maybe that's the title of, there it is. That's the title of a new a new venture is kind mm. of so your Substack newsletter can be like a blog if you want it to. So mine's kind of like a blog. I developed it. I shut down the teaming brain, put a final farewell post on there, directed people to living into the dark, used my own name as the not living into the dark, but my name as the address. Okay. Substack. So it's just mattcarden.substack.com and um, wrote the, actually the first three things I wrote on it lay out and progressively greater detail the the metaphor of living into the dark that is the guiding metaphor of the blog the idea being i don't or the newsletter i don't know where this is going to go mm. it's going to be like the teeming brain it's going to be whatever is taking me there at the moment but uh, the very idea of living into the dark is going to be one of the core recurrent <laughs> themes and all the implications of that in life and creativity and society and philosophy Just like you said it's we live into the dark. If you, if you, if you think otherwise, I think you were creating a comfortable seeming illusion yeah. for yourself. Man, Matt, one of the things that I think really resonates with me about that and just you as I experience you as a person is you seem throughout your life to kind of follow the inner energy. I know that sounds kind of a weird statement, but when I was working through some of this with my therapist, we talked about the the daemon or the muse or whatever we call it as almost this energy that you can't quite control, but you have to be in touch with. And then you follow in terms of creativity and how you live your life. And I see that in my own podcast venture. I'll, I'll get obsessed with a certain idea or you know, group of people. And then I just get so energized that other interests just kind of fall away. And I just get obsessed with this one thing. And I don't know that I'm necessarily choosing it. I'm just trying to follow, yeah, that that inner yeah. sense of things. You ride the wave, right? You, you ride, ride the, the wave. And that's, that's I think, all creative people, not only all creative people, everybody in general, mm. people that sort of consciously self-identify as or recognize the feeling of creativity, maybe feel it more consciously, more potently. Sure. Um, you know, life is a series. It seems like it's a series of themes and situations that, constellate or maybe even sometimes coagulate <laughs> and then they then they go away you know and that's also internally sure right and, and sometimes we have a disjunction between where we think where we feel we are and that energy and what's around us sometimes it's aligned um but however it works we're not in control of why we're mm. interested in what we're interested in or what these waves of energy are and that was my whole point when i wrote the book, A Course in Demonic Creativity, which okay. started as another blog that I ran from 20, 2009 to 2011, okay. titled just Demon Muse. It's gone now. Okay. If you go to demonmuse.com, I think you'll find some some Japanese, I can't tell what now, as, okay. as, the, as the domain. But I took the articles that I was writing there about they were creativity lessons and advice and turned them into that ebook, A Course in Demonic Creativity. And the whole thing, the whole thing is about 
um, the value as a writer, but it's applicable to other to everything else. Sure. Of consciously owning, recognizing that sense that your own creativity is like this autonomous mm. force. It's like this autonomous intelligence that that uh, has its own schedule, it has its own preferences and its own desires, and you're linked inextricably in this interrelationship, but that you can uh, you can work with it more or less wholesomely, effectively. And and I was the whole book is devoted to laying out the idea. I go into some of the history of the ancient Greek and Roman concepts, and even partly partially in terms of uh, um, like uh, some of the occult and esoteric versions of it, like the holy guardian angel, you know, from sure. Western esoteric magical traditions. Um, and then offers chapters full of advice about getting to know your own demon muse and uh, maybe figuring out its preferences and its rhythm and, and what it wants to write about. But the, the, the whole thing is predicated on the idea, which I bring out explicitly, that just the choice to view it this way and to relate to it this way and to think of it as an it that you can relate to mm. rather than just being you is really helpful. It's kind of funny. I already had this going on. And then Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Yeah. And uh, Magic. Big Magic. Yeah. Yeah. She gave that, uh, that Ted talk <laughs> yeah. on creativity and the, she was, she was referring to the ancient Roman concept of the genius. Same thing. Same. Th- I'm already all, I'm already all over this and she comes out with it, which Damn is it. one of those <laughs> things that happened all the time, you know, but it was good. And I refer to her in the book. And she okay. That, that yeah. That was a great book. It's justif- justifiably well known. And she put those ideas into Big Magic. So it's interesting to see this as it was kind of like it, it, it conforms to what she and I and others are talking about. It's as if there are cultural ideas that the time comes and you find it encroaching and making incursions from various apparently separate points. Mm. Well, just like was it Leibniz and uh, Newton invented calculus independently. It was time for calculus to happen mm. in history. Right. I love that. Calculus. It's it seems like the past 12, 15 years it's like sort of time in some way for ideas about this force call it the muse or or the demon or whatever uh to make inroads and it really seems like a lot of people respond to it that's another thing is people who find it interesting and there's a lot of them they're fascinated could have fallen on deaf ears but i think there's something that people in both intellectual and creative circles find electrifying about this thing sure i I do and and that and so uh, that's part of living into the dark i think is being that all goes together that's being in tune with that thing that is leading you you don't know where you're on this journey together but it unfolds and so since september since september the living into the dark newsletter has i've given it its head there's there has to be a bit of a structure to get things done but energy waxes wanes directions change yeah wow Okay, Matt, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I've, I've gotten so much out of it. Is there anything else that you feel like you'd want to share about the book, yourself, your project before we sign off? Uh, I appreciate the question, but no. I mean, I've been speaking pretty personally through a lot of this anyway. I feel like we've, we've conversationed into the dark <laughs> <laughs> in, in the way it's wanted to go. So I appreciate, I appreciate your having me on again to talk about. These Absolutely. Things. Anytime. Well, would you mind uh, just ending with the line of the podcast, which is continue the conversation, which I hope you that we do. Yeah. Would you mind saying it? Well, how about, how about I just say, continue the conversation? 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.